Pizza pie, that's amore. When the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine, that's amore. Bells will ring, tingle-ling-a-ling, tingle-ling-a-ling, and you'll sing Vita Bella. Hearts will play tippy-tippy-tay, tippy-tippy-tay Like a guitar and When the stars make you drool Just like a pastefas, ooh, that's amore When you dance down the street With a cloud at your feet, you're in love When you walk in a dream But you know you're not dreaming, signore Excuse me, but you see Back in old Napoli, that's more. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have Diane Rehm joining us um, from the studios at WAMU in Washington, D.C. Um, before we start, I'll read Diane's short bio from the back of her latest book, On My Own, out this year um, from Borzai Press, Knopf. Diane Rehm has hosted the Diane Rehm Show on WAMU 88.5 FM in Washington, D.C., distributed by NPR, since 1979. The show has a weekly listening audience of two and a half million. Currently, it is broadcast on nearly 200 stations and Sirius satellite radio across the country, as well as internationally, by Armed Forces Radio Network. She lives in Washington, D.C. Um, with her dog, Maxie. Is that fair to say, Diane? <laughs> that is not only fair, 
It's totally accurate. <laughs> you Thank can... you, T. Well, welcome, Diane. Thank you so much for being on Living Writers. I, I really, I know I said this off air, but I do want to make it a, a public record. I am absolutely thrilled to be speaking with you today. Thank you. And I know we'll enjoy our conversation. And I should say we're taping this on March 29th. 2016. Um, Diane, I just to start us off maybe with Maxie a little bit, um, you, you actually wrote a book um, that features Maxie, and I didn't realize that until this morning. You know, it's funny. I was out west in, I think, Colorado, and I spoke to a large group of people, and after speaking, and of course, during the course of that commentary on my part, I talked about Maxie because (laughs) he has been such an important element in not only my life, but John's life as well. And uh, there's a funny story about him because... At first, John Ream wasn't ready to have a dog added to our household. He kept saying, you promised to wait until after you retired to get a dog. But I wanted a dog so badly. And one morning, I simply opened the want ads. And don't you know, there was an ad for a long-haired chihuahua nearby. And so he saw me reading the the want ads, and he said, <laughs> what are you looking at? And I said, oh, I'm just looking. And then I got up and made a telephone call to the owner, and she said, I'll be happy to meet you. And so I said to John, Let's go look. And he said, you promised to wait. And I said, I'm just going to go look. You do, Diane. Yeah, yeah. I'll bet. <laughs> <laughs> and we got there, and on the floor were the two cutest baby long-haired chihuahuas you've ever seen. And they're just a ball of fluff when they're tiny. (laughs) One was a boy and one was a girl. And I got on the floor and I looked up at John and I said, I want both. (laughs) Clearly. He said, said, you've got to be going crazy. That was so smart of you, Diane, though, because then you were in the position for um, negotiating for one. Like, where is it? (laughs) Exactly. But you know, T, I didn't know that because he and I stepped outside the room. The owner said, I can see you two have a lot to talk about. (laughs) So we stepped outside, and John said, You know, you really did promise no dog until after retirement. So we went back into that room. And I said to the owner, I'm so sorry to have brought you all the way out here, but it's clear my husband is not ready for a dog. At which point John said, oh, no, I'm happy to take one, and I'll take the little boy. And that's how we got Maxie. We got into the car. 
with him, and I said, what shall we name him? And John said, Maximilian, for the first emperor of Mexico, and of course, as it turned out, the only emperor. (sighs) And I said, and we'll call him Maxie. And that's how Maxie came into our lives. Oh, that's a that is a beautiful story. And I thank you. Thanks for sharing that one, Diane, to to kick us off here. Um, how did could, one follow up though? How did you know you wanted a long haired Chihuahua when you were looking through the want ads? Was that had you had one in your past or? We had been in the Dallas airport together. And I saw a woman sitting across from me with this beautiful dog lying in her lap. And I had never seen this particular breed before. So I went over and sat beside her and asked if I could (laughs) pet the dog and asked about his origins. And... It was a long-haired chihuahua, and she and I were in touch for the next year or so. She was trying to help me find breeders in my area, which we couldn't do. But then at the end of that year, I mean, it was just heaven sent to open the wantheads on that (laughs) Sunday. Meant to be. Meant to be. Uh, well, well, Diane, we've so you've you've spoken of John. John Ream now is he's. It seems like he's a, um interwoven uh, into your your day as you write um, on on my own. Uh, he's definitely fully present in it, um, despite the title. Um, could you could you tell uh, us a little bit about the origins of starting to write this book? Um, Well, why don't I read for you this first page of the book, and then I'll tell you about how I began. Is that okay? Wonderful. This first chapter is titled, A Decision. On June 14th, 2014, my husband, John Rehm, age 83, began his withdrawal from life. The aides at Brighton Gardens were instructed to stop bringing medications, menus, or water. His decision to die came after a long and difficult conversation the day before with Dr. Roy Freed, his primary physician, our son David, our daughter Jennifer, who was on the phone from Boston, and me. John declared to Dr. Freed that because Parkinson's disease had so affected him that he no longer had the use of his hands, arms, or legs, because he could no longer stand, walk, eat, bathe, or in any way care for himself on his own, he was now ready to die. He said he understood the disease was progressing, taking him further and further into incapacity with no hope of improvement. 
Therefore, he wanted to end his life. Clearly, his expectation and his misunderstanding was that now that he had made his decision, he could simply be put to sleep immediately with medication. When Dr. Freed explained he was unable to carry out John's wishes, that he was prohibited from committing such an act in the state of Maryland, John became very angry. He said, I feel betrayed. Tears came into his eyes, tears of frustration and disappointment. Here was a man who had lived his life able, for the most part, to take charge of events, to be certain that his well-considered decisions would be carried out. And now he was making the ultimate decision and having it thwarted. It was then that Dr. Freed explained that the only alternative John had if he truly wished to die was to stop eating, drinking fluids, or taking medications. In other words, he could bring his life to an end through those means, but no one could do it for him. Dr. Freed added that he hoped John would not make the decision to end his life, but that if he did so, as his physician, he would honor it. And that was how John began what he called the long glide. I was there the night of June 22nd, and through the night I stayed on two chairs trying to sleep with Maxie on my stomach. I couldn't sleep. I was right beside John's bed. I finally got up, and I had my iPad with me, and I began writing. I began writing what I was feeling, what I was seeing, what I was experiencing as I watched my husband after 10 days die. That night turned into June 23rd, and that morning I left after his caregiver came in to take Maxie home to feed him, to walk him, and to then return. But after I got home, his caregiver called and said, Diane, please come back. I think Mr. John is passing. Mm -hmm. And I rushed back, but unfortunately I got there. 20 minutes too late. They tell me that loved ones wait until their loved ones are gone. And it happens over and over again that that's when they pass. 
And I think that's what John did. Yes. That, to, to, in some ways, try to spare you that, that, that moment of the, that, that moment. But you, I'm so sorry, Diane. Um, Thank you. Um, I, I think uh, talking about the writing, how you began to write, that, that, um, that impulse to um, maybe speak on the page in a way to try to understand, to try to figure out the moment, not maybe all the impacts that were to come um, on June 23rd. Um, but it, it feels like this, this book is a way of um, thinking through and also connecting outward to others to share the story, um, to help them as they maybe think through uh, loss that they've had or possibly considering their own, their own end. You know, T, that's such a, a beautiful thought. I think as I was writing on that night, I was thinking only about John and myself. Mm. And I was thinking about the rage I felt that he had not been helped to die, that he had had to endure those 10 days, and that his son and daughter and I, all of us, our family, had had to endure that long suffering 10 days. It just felt unjust to me. And that was really the motivation that got me up and started in my writing. Of course, as time went on after his death and I began reflecting more and more on our life together as well as the efforts that both he and I had put into our life together, then the book expanded. It seems that part of the book, and when you were here in Ann Arbor, Diane, at Rackham Auditorium um, back on March 17th, um, it, it seems that you said, and tell, please tell me if I'm, I'm not getting this, this right, but that... Um, that for John having the decision after the the betrayal, the initial betrayal, um, when he decided that that's what he would do, he would, um, in effect, follow what the the doctor had said would be the possibility: no food, no water, um, only only some medications to to help no, moderate. No, no, no medication. So he didn't either. even have morphine either. He chose nothing. At the at the very end, the last three days, he was given small doses of morphine. So, so even that could have made a difference if morphine had become part of the ten days earlier. Exactly, perhaps. that would have definitely shortened his suffering. 
he but had... I think what you're referring to, T, and I do recall both making that comment and writing it in the book, is that once his decision was made, and I came in that very next day after we had had this conversation among the four of us, I had brought in a photograph album that I had made for him, starting with his birth in France, in Paris, where his father was the sports editor of the Paris Herald Trib, and his mother was a fashion runway model, um, and where John lived for six years. I had made this photograph album going all the way through his graduation from Friends Seminary in New York City. So when I arrived the next morning after he had had this conversation, he said to me, I have had nothing to eat, nothing to drink, and no medication. And he said, and I feel great. Mm. And I said, are you sure, are you absolutely sure that this is what you want? And he said, I have no doubt in my mind. So at that point, I got onto the bed with him, put my arm around him, and together we looked through that photograph album. It was such a sweet and tender hour that we spent after he had made his decision. And so for that, that was, that was him going beyond that, the feeling of betrayal and, and, again, having the dignity of choice, being able Absolutely. to be empowered by that. That's exactly right, feeling empowered by having made his own choice to take his own life into his own hands and not to be dictated by the rules or laws of others. And that's, in a way, how he, has li he lived his life, how, how I hope to live mine, you, yours, Diane. So in a way, it feels, um, as, you're, as we're having this conversation, um, it, it, doesn't feel, it doesn't feel irrational um, to think about these parts of the story and how this might be what someone needs um, as an end. Um, and maybe it's because other people don't want to think about it or, I mean, it's not always the easiest to even have conversations with others about um, death and dying, loved ones, um, yourself. Uh, but, but maybe if we could somehow be brave enough or be open enough to try to talk about it. You know, T, that's um, something I am speaking about all over the country, not to urge people to say, I'm ready to die, but rather to have them talk with their family, talk with their neighbors, 
talk with their friends about what they want when the end comes. This country is death-averse. We really would rather not talk about death. We're happy to talk about the joyful passages of life, about birth, about marriage, about happiness, but we are so afraid to talk about what comes at the end of life. And what I am encouraging people to do is to explain what it is and to think about what it is they want. I heard from a woman on a radio program recently who said that she had had cancer many years ago and had not given in to her feeling of, well, I want to die right away. Instead, she had sought treatment and had found a way to live through it. She said, I am now in my 60s, but now I am thinking about the right to die. I think everyone should have what they want at the end. If palliative care on a long-term basis is what you want, that's what you should ask for and that's what you should receive. If, on the other hand, you say, I have lived a good life, I don't want to endure further pain or suffering, or the palliative care cannot reach my pain and suffering, and I am ready to give up treatment, I am ready to go, I believe you should have the right to do that. California has just passed its own law allowing the right to die, as have Oregon and Washington State and Vermont and one more state. There are now five who allow individuals who have been deemed within six months of death by two doctors who have been interviewed by those doctors to be given an amount of medication with which they, the patients, can take their own lives if they choose. And the surprising part is that of the thousands in Oregon who have been given that medication. Only three quarters have used it. In other words, it's an empowerment to receive that medication simply to know that you have the power when and if you are ready to go. That makes all the difference. All the difference in the world. Because you have that choice. You have exactly. that and You know it exists. Um, and then you, it gives you the space to maybe reckon with the end a bit more um, in whatever it is in your way that you do. Um, 
right? Because then you won't have that worry of what's, who's going to be the one that decides, like, as, like, if you had Alzheimer's and that you knew that your mind was leaving you at a certain point, even if you were of a strong constitution physically, um, but it's, it seems like these are moments where people could have a, a rational say in, in their end. And indeed, there was a recent article in New York Times about a woman and her husband who she, suffering from the beginnings of Alzheimer's, had said to her husband, I want to have this medication so that when you and I know that I am proceeding beyond the point where I know what I am doing rationally. Before I get to that point, I want to have that medication so that I can administer it to myself, so that people are beginning to think along these lines because we are seeing people more and more willing to talk about the issue. Um, my my own grandmother, Diane, actually, when she was in her 80s, um, there was a time where it seemed clear as she she wanted someone to help her her die. Um, and I was too young, like if uh, looking back on things, if I could have known uh, or been uh, different, um, I think I could have, I hope maybe I could have been strong enough to help her. But, and she lives in England, so also maybe that's slightly different as well, because the, her doctor at that time, back in um, the 90s, had said, you know, Peg, you have, you have pills there, like you have enough. You know, oh, I see. Um, yeah. Because I guess what her prescription was was enough. And now that prescription has been outlawed in this country. I see. So it's, but I think then that also makes it a very, a more lonely decision as well. And you might feel, for example, as I think maybe my grand did, that you would be um, disappointing others or you would be doing something transgressive, wrong against some sort of civic agreement that we have of being part of this society, this community, instead of having um, something in place that actually doesn't allow for prolonged suffering if the end or is the indeed, end. Or indeed some kind of uh, religious boundary that you might feel you'd be crossing if indeed you took your own life exactly. as opposed to waiting for the will of God. And, and I so respect that You position. write about that, yes. But I, for... Me, though my belief in God is very strong, my faith in God is very strong, I do believe that I would not be offending God or my belief if I said to those I love, I am ready 
I want you with me. Please, come and be with me. Let us talk and let me go. Understand, it is my love for you, my love for life, that I am now ready to move on, and I hope you will support me. But those are the conversations that people need to have. Yes. And it might not be easy, but I think you might find that once you start, they become some of the most valuable conversations oh, you might goodness. have. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the, the way one might start such a conversation, say, with one's parent, um, who may be getting elderly. I mean, my kids know exactly how I feel. We have had this conversation openly. They know exactly what um, I wish and what I want. But I think for those who haven't had that conversation, perhaps the way to begin might be to talk about yourself, to say, you know, I've been thinking a lot as I grow older, maybe you're in your 40s or 30s, about what comes at the end and what I want at the end. And really, I wonder if you have thought about what you want at the end, just so I will know and be able to respect your wishes. I just think that conversation is so very important for each and every one of us to have so that you know if your parent desires palliative care, wants to be happily kept at home, happily kept comfortable for as long as God will allow that's beautiful. That's absolutely what that parent wants. On the other hand, if there should come a point where that parent would say, you know, I've had enough. I'm ready to move on. John felt as though he was going on to the next journey. And that was the title of his book, Onward Journey, a book of poetry and essays all about life and death. And Diane, um, the conversation is also is ongoing, just like how John's book Onward Journey is. There's these poems that are it's it's a, a um, in dialogue with how you think about what your beliefs are. Um, and I'm sure like when you're, you're 
Well, I wonder when you're talking about having a conversation with your parents, with your loved ones, with your friends, it's it's ongoing. It's not like there's one conversation. So you, whatever you say at that one moment is what it is, you know, which it might be builds. frightening in some ways to people. But of it's course. something that is that you would just keep talking about and not, well, I mean, not endlessly, but you know what I mean. It's just part oh, of t- life. Oh, you're so right. I think that opening conversation can be frightening, can be off-putting, but even if you open that door just slightly, you'll know that you set in motion thoughts, thoughts that reverberate and thoughts that you can gently, if there is resistance, gently come back to later on. Each of us must gauge how to generate that conversation with kindness, with love. Um, With humor. With humor. And with humor. Great. I, I think you're absolutely right. Humor is so important and can help with even the most difficult of conversations. It's true, isn't it, Diane? It's true. As I'm here talking with you, speaking with you today, I'm I'm struck in your book on my own. Um, you said that determination is is a quality that you believe that now you recognize is something that's been undergirding your your whole life. And I can only say I hear it in your voice with with and the ideas here, and that this is something that you will be doing. Once you don't have the, the, the day-to-day responsibilities of the Diane Reem show, right? This will be You're, one of... I'm sorry. Go, go, go ahead, Diane. Uh, I was just going to say I think you're absolutely right. But, T, I have to tell you, I only now am beginning to recognize my own determination in my life. I don't think I recognized it for years and years, but it has been there. It's been there even through my childhood, even the idea of, you know, I was sort of living in two worlds. My parents' world was that of Arab immigrants, I walked out of my home to an American life, to public schools, to teachers who looked at me and treated me in a very different way from the way I was treated at home. Even out in the playground, on the softball field, on the volleyball or basketball or tennis court, I felt different from the way I felt at home. At home, there was a restrictive silence. At home, there was no questions asked. Mm. So that going into school and being always one of the first to raise my hand, probably an annoyance to the (laughs) teachers, but nevertheless, part of who I was 
and I think leading on to what I have become. But without John Ream T., I'm not sure it would ever have happened. He was the very first person in my life to say to me, you are absolutely wonderful. You can do anything you set your mind to. Those are powerful words. You bet. You bet. And he was the first person in my life who ever said that to me. I have a little chill there, Diane. And you you also said there was a conversation with you and John where he was the only, in the book, in On My Own, you said um, that he was one of the only people who knew perhaps how terrified you were when you were going, before you were going on air, um, maybe in the more, the early days of the program. Uh, exactly. And, and he, exactly. And, and Diane, he said something, like to paraphrase, let it be part, let the fear be part of who you are. Exactly. Just allow, just know that that fear is part of who and what you are. Don't try to push it away. Just understand it is within you and is part of what allows you to move forward. Fear can be and is a motivating factor if you acknowledge that it's part of who and what you are. I would never have learned that without him. And then I don't think it's something that you... Does, is it something that you also still struggle with? Because perhaps it's it's one thing to say it and one thing to read it. And I thought, oh, that resonates with me. And oh, that you, but but to live it as well would be something that you're renewing that commitment to to the idea itself or a way of being. The uh, the, um, the first few years of taking the show. I would have to arrive very, very early and sit out in the parking lot to calm myself Mm -hmm. because the fear was so great and my stomach just drove me crazy during those early years. And I had to live through it to get through it. I couldn't push it aside. Mm. But he helped me learn to allow it to be part of me instead of trying to push it away from myself. And and that's such that is a that is a beautiful thing to have someone say to you to to think about. Um, I feel like it connects to what you're doing, Diane Ream, whether it's it's on the radio, talking with people um, and listening to people, or whether it's what you're going, it seems to me, when you're going to be advocating now for people to talk about death with dignity um, and, and maybe even seeing our own ends. 
You know, everywhere I have been thus far on this book tour, and I began in New York and then went to Philadelphia and then to Seattle to speak at Microsoft and Mm -hmm. then the Seattle Town Hall and then on to Houston and Phoenix and now most recently in Louisville. I mean, everyone has a story. Everyone has, as you do, the remembrance of your grandmother. I have my own mother and father who both died at a very early age when I was just 19. My mother was 49. My father died 11 months later, literally a broken heart. He was 62. And then John's father and then his mother, both taking their lives. I think I've lived with this so long. And now to lose my beloved husband of 54 years, this man who was built like a football player, who was six feet tall with these broad shoulders he had earned working in his father's rock quarry. This beautiful, strong man who lost about 50 pounds in the process of his experience with Parkinson's. I think having gone through all that, I am strong. I am willing to speak out. I am willing to hear from those. I rejoice in hearing from those who would disagree with my perspective because each of us has our own life experience from which we then put forward our thoughts, hopefully listening carefully to what others have to say. And that's what I intend to do. I am not proselytizing. I am simply urging people to have that conversation. And to start telling their stories to each other. And then Absolutely. And see the connections. And that it's... Um, and listening, so so very key. Uh, when you when you talk about um, your your life's work with the radio so far, Diane, you say that it should be some like a listening show host rather than a talk show host if you're doing exactly. it right. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, because I think the most effective talk show hosts are the good listeners. Um, I don't believe I am here for you to, when when I am hosting my own show, I'm not here for you to hear my opinions. I'm here to facilitate the conversations with others so you, the listener, can learn from what others have to say. I am here as a facilitator. I am here as a listener. 
And I hope I am here as someone who helps you to understand what everyone is saying. Diane, what I can say from my own experience and then the experience of sitting in Rackham Auditorium here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and seeing the people line up at those microphones to speak with you. And I'm sure that this, I'm I'm absolutely certain that this was your experience at the Seattle Town Hall um, and the other places that you mentioned, um, that they, you, you really continue to change lives with your program and having people listen and still, even if they're not the callers, <laughs> but being part of the, the, the fabric of the, the national conversation or so, like from there, when they're doing the data entry job or whatever, or uh, homemaking at home, um, whatever, whatever it is, um, hearing the other people's stories, connecting to it, maybe feeling less alone. Certainly there's less silence. <laughs> You know, when I spent the 14 years, the first 14 years of our marriage staying at home and raising our two children, there was a radio host on the air here in Washington whose name was Betty Grobley, and she was on the air at 12 noon every day. And I can remember feeling as though she brought the outside world into my home and allowed me to think more deeply and more broadly about what was happening in the world at that time. It wasn't television I went to. It was the radio. But, you know, I grew up with radio we did not have a television set in our home until my senior year in high school. So radio has always been my medium. It's a medium I believe is more directly mind to mind. When I watch television, I am distracted by what someone looks like, how they talk, how they move, their clothing. When I listen to the radio, I feel the message comes directly without filter into my mind, and then I can process it without distraction. So for me, Radio has always been my medium, and I'm sure will continue to be, even after I, myself, am no longer behind the microphone. Diane, that will—you're going to take us through the election, through November. I'm going to be on the air until the end of the year. December 31 will be my last day. And but but also it won't be because you'll be doing other things. Immediately I want to rush in and say you're going to be behind the mic in some way or another. But as you joked um in Rackham, you at least you'll be able to sleep in a bit though. Absolutely. <laughs> 5 a.m. is not my favorite time of the day. 
But it is the time of the day that I have gotten up every weekday for 37 years. And um, it's very dark outside. And now I take Maxie out for a walk at about 5.30 each morning. And then we come back and have our breakfast together and I'm usually here at the studio between 8.15 and 8.30. So I think we'll be able to sleep in just a bit longer, at least until it's light outside. And John said you wrote in On My Own, you wrote that when you and John walked into the, the new apartment or the condo, John said to you, Diane, look at the light. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. It was such a powerful moment because we had been looking for a year for a condo. Um, We had lived for 40 years in a fairly large house just on the edge of Washington. And because of John's Parkinson's, this house had four stories, and I was so fearful that he would lose his balance and fall down those stairs. So for one solid year, even before we began looking, for one solid year, John Rehm cleared all the detritus of 40 years out of our house. Mm. Two full truckloads were taken away. And then we began looking at condos. And we must have looked at at least a dozen over the course of a year. And then we walked into this one, and John whispered in my ear shortly after the door opened, Look at the light. And throughout the condo, it's on a corner, and it's up on the 14th floor, and it overlooks a park. Mm. And there is nothing but light throughout the apartment all day long. So, and both of us love the light. So that was really the selling point. And um, we walked in and went home and decided to make an offer on it. It hadn't even gone on the market yet, but we did. And (laughs) um, we were lucky enough to get it. And Diane, um, it, and it will be the light that you see this evening when you go home. Absolutely. The light and Maxie. And Maxie. <laughs> and Maxie. Because Maxie, as soon as I walk in the apartment, if he has not been with me, actually, he's here at the office with me today. He is in my office. <laughs> waiting for me, and I will take him home, and then we'll do some errands, and uh, we'll be together this evening. 
Diane, thanks so much for speaking with me today. It's, it's meant the world to me. Oh, T, I've enjoyed it. So your questions were beautiful. Thank you for the intimacy of this conversation. That's what you are Unforgettable Though near or far Like a song of love that clings to me How the thought of you does things to me Never before has someone been more unforgettable in every way. And forevermore, that's how you stay. It's incredible that someone so unforgettable thinks that I am unforgettable too. Shotgun snap, looks to his right and connects, reaching for the end zone, touchdown.
touchdown, Michigan, Amara Darba. Gardner makes a handoff to Smith, looking, firing. Jake Buck, one-handed catch. He caught it. Unbelievable catch. Welcome inside this edition of the Welcome inside this edition of the Daily Sports Report. My name is Leo Blave and you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor 88.3 on the dial. CJ Hadlock, Brett Graham joining me in studio today. Brett, I'll start with you. I know the women's basketball team, their journey through the NIT continues tomorrow night. They play Florida Gulf Coast. They headed to Fort Myers today. What can you tell us about that matchup? Well, I can tell you that I'm not going to be there because we looked at flights and it was a little bit pricey. Um, the The women's basketball team advancing as far as they did last year um, in the NIT. Uh, this time last year, they fell to eventual champion UCLA. Really impressive win um, from the Wolverines over Temple the other night. Came back from a double-figure deficit. Um, they were down by 15 at, at, at one point, so really impressive uh, there. The challenge is going to be that Michigan has a high-scoring offense that sometimes falters, and Florida Gulf Coast, who, who they're facing, is a steady, consistent, and rock-solid defense. They're number two in the nation. They allow only 49 points per game. So it's really going to be on freshman Hallie Thome and the Michigan Wolverines' offense to see if they can uh, push past that. And I, I know this would be such a momentous I know this would be such a momentous occasion for the women's basketball program that has yet to put up any banner. I highly doubt and I would hope they wouldn't just put up a banner for a WNIT Final Four, but certainly if they win the tournament, they would get their first banner up ever at Chrysler Center and that'd be something great to see for a women's basketball program that for years has really been at the doormat of the Big Ten, and all of a sudden they are continue to improve. This is the second straight year they've made a deep run.